Bean Dad, The Dress, 30 to 50 Feral Hogs. If you knew what any of those were, you spend too much time online. And hey, I do too. 16th Minute of Fame is a new weekly podcast hosted by me, Jamie Loftus. And every week we take a closer look at an internet character of the day. Who are they? What made them so notorious? How did the internet or the algorithm choose them? And what does a person do when they're suddenly confronted with more attention than the human psyche can handle? Listen to 16th Minute of Fame starting May 7th on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Imagine you're a fly on the wall at a dinner between the mafia, the CIA, and the KGB. That's where my new podcast begins. This is Neil Strauss, host of To Live and Die in L.A., and I wanted to quickly tell you about an intense new series about a dangerous spy taught to seduce men for their secrets and sometimes their lives. From Tenderfoot TV, this is To Die For. To Die For is available now. Listen for free on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Diosa. And I'm Mala. We are the creators of Locatora Radio, a radiophonic novella, which is a fancy way of saying a, a podcast. podcast. Welcome to Locatora Radio Season 9. Love, Love at first, first listen. listen. We're older, we're wiser, and we're podcasting through a new decade of our lives. This season, we're falling in love with podcasting all over again. And getting to the heart of our stories. We're going places we've never gone before, and we're bringing you along with us. With new segments, correspondence, and a brand new sound. Season 9 is kicking off with an intimate interview with Grammy Award-winning singer-songwriter Natalia Laforcade. What's giving you hope right now? Well, when I see what music does to people it gives me a lot of hope if you liked locatora before you're gonna love season nine subscribe to our show and you'll see why locatora is your prima's favorite podcast listen to locatora radio as part of the michael Tura podcast network available on the iHeartRadio app apple podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts hi everyone it's sophia and welcome back to work in progress I'm so excited to have been given the chance to sit down with two legends, Ben Cohen and Jerry Greenfield, better known to most of us as Ben and Jerry of Ben and Jerry's Ice Cream. Some of you may be more familiar with these two guys for their incredibly successful and super delicious ice cream business, but they are also lifelong friends and lifelong activists. They've both been recognized for fostering their company's commitment to social responsibility by the Council on Economic Priorities, and by the United States Small Business Administration. They've also received the James Beard Humanitarians of the Year Award, the Peace Museum's Community Peacemakers of the Year Award, and the Corporate Giving Award. Ben has served on the boards of Greenpeace, Business for Social Responsibility and Heifer International, the Social Venture Network, Hampshire College, and Oxfam. And in addition, Ben also served as the national co-chair of the Bernie 2020 campaign. Jerry is involved in promoting the social and environmental initiatives that Ben and Jerry's undertakes, and he is the vice president of the Ben and Jerry's Foundation. Presently, the two are laser-focused on their campaign to fight to end qualified immunity, which we'll discuss in detail today. It is an incredibly important and extremely timely effort, especially in light of the recent verdict in the Derek Chauvin trial for the murder of George Floyd and the recent murder by police of Dante Wright. We discuss how they became so invested in this issue, their mission statement, police brutality, 
and Black Lives Matter. We also, of course, talk about the history of Ben & Jerry's, the fascinating science, and what might be unexpected engineering behind ice cream making, and what makes theirs so unique. I'm excited for you all to dig into this treat of an episode and hear what these two great businessmen and humanitarians have to share with us today. Thank you guys both so much for being here. I have so loved my journey as a fan because I like so many people know you for your incredible ice cream. You make parties better and birthdays better. And then myself and so many other people in the world realized you're both these deeply committed activists. But before we get into the present, I really do love to go back with people because I meet you today as, you know, these iconic business leaders and these founders of a massive, massive company but I'm very curious about the beginning. I'm, I'm curious about how all of this came to be. You both are from Brooklyn, correct? That's where we were born. My parents moved out to Long Island when I was one and a half. Ah, so, so you're a Long Island kid. I'm a Long Island kid. Can you paint a picture of what was happening in the city, you know, when you were I don't know, say having your supremely cool double digit birthday turning 10. Well, I was I was a fat, chubby kid. I was, you know, kind of bullied and made fun of because I was a fat, chubby kid. You know, I was kind of a, a smart kid. I was able to get by in school without really doing my homework. And I was a tall kid, so I got picked to... Uh, put up the bulletin boards, you know, when the teacher wanted something up. I, I, I kind of uh, reached my academic peak, actually, in uh, elementary school. I was voted most likely to succeed. You, you, you didn't have that as one of my, uh, my accomplishments when you gave the thing <laughs> at the beginning. Uh, and then it was all downhill from there. And what about you, Jerry? Well, so Ben and I grew up in the same town. I was also a chubby kid, and Ben and I met when we were 13. We were in seventh grade together in the same junior high school, and we met in gym class running around the track because we were the two slowest, fattest kids in the class. And, you know, plus we were, we were kind of nerdy kids, and mm. I would have to say not really in the social mainstream, wouldn't you say, Ben? Yeah, I think you'd have to say that. <laughs> <laughs> so were you two fast friends? Yeah, yeah, we got along great. You know, I think when you're not really uh, in the fast crowd, uh, mm. you know, when you're sort of outliers, we had, I don't know, two or three or four friends who were outliers. And we used to have lunch together in seventh grade in a separate part of the lunchroom. And, uh, you know, we we found our uh, our people. I was lucky to find some of your people early. What what were you guys really interested in then? I was interested in uh, science and I was interested in electricity. And I had like a little work table next to my father's desk in the basement. And 
I just had all these wires that I kept on kind of twisting together. And it was this huge, big tangle of wires. So that's, that's what I was into. I like that. I was, uh, I was kind of a science geek too as a kid. I was really fascinated by how things worked. And I remember also in the seventh grade, um, we did our first animal dissections for biology. And I could not believe what the inside of a living thing looked like. And I came home and told my parents I wanted to be a surgeon. I was like, this is the coolest. I can, you don't understand. You can put people back together. And it's, and my parents were sort of like, okay. Um, so you can imagine their displeasure many years later when I said, you know, I don't think I'm going to go to medical school. I think I want to be an actor. <laughs> my mom and yeah. dad were like, good God, what have we done? We shouldn't have let her do so many plays. I, uh, I told my parents I wanted to be uh, an electrician and... They said, "Oh no, dear! You you want to be an electrical engineer?" Uh, and I I didn't I didn't do either one of those things. Hey, I didn't go to medical school either, and now I'm playing a doctor in my new job. So <laughs> you never really know how these things will come full circle. I'm curious, you know, you Ben, you just spoke about your family. I think about the ways our families can encourage us to, you know, dream bigger, set larger goals. And and since the both of you, you know, have been in each other's lives since the seventh grade, I know you lived together at one point. I have questions about that. I'm curious, how did your families each influence you in terms of what they encouraged you to do or what they taught you was possible? I, I, I wonder what you can kind of trace in terms of your familial experience as kids to your your current belief systems about, you know, changing the world and, and building things that you don't see yet? Well, my parents were the kind of parents who loved you and supported you no matter what. Mm. Whatever you wanted to do was fine with them. They were very non-directive. And uh, I think they were big believers in education and that worked for me because I was a real rule follower. So I did whatever they told me to do in school. And unlike Ben, who didn't used to do his homework, I always did my homework. And mm-hmm. I always handed in my assignments on time. And when I got home from school, I did my homework right away. I never <laughs> procrastinated. <laughs> I mean, you couldn't, you couldn't really find two more different people in, in many respects than Ben and me. And yet you're the best of friends. How is your friendship, which was established so early, and also the fact, Jerry, that you just bring up that you're very different in terms of your habits. How was that for you two to live together? Because now I'm curious, who cleaned the house? Who was the messy roommate? Like, how did that all go down? Well, we lived together, I think, several different times. I think what maybe the well the the first time was when i you know i had i had gone to college and uh they had a a january kind of uh term where you you take the month of january and do some independent study and i went with some friends to drive and we drove out to california and we were supposedly researching alternative educational institutions I don't really recall visiting any of those. 
<laughs> but I did decide at the end of January that I was going to drop out of school and stay in California and get a job as an ice cream man, you know, uh, ringing bells and selling ice cream to kids because I had experience at that because I did that when I was in high school. Yeah, your senior year, right? You you worked yeah. in an ice cream shop then? Yeah. And mm. these guys left and, you know, I had like no money, no place to live. I was trying to figure out, wow, do I get a job first or do I find a place to live first? And couldn't figure that out. And I just felt so alone, you know, mm. the loneliest I've ever felt in my life. And I started hitchhiking back to the closest person that I could find that I knew. And that was Jerry who lived in uh, Oberlin. He, he was going to school at, at Oberlin College. And uh, I just moved in and lived on his floor for uh, a few months. <laughs> and I, I was pretty well behaved, I think, living on your floor, Jerry. No? Yeah, Ben was great. And the question of who cleaned up never came up. But it did come up when we lived together in New York City in an apartment after I had gotten out of college uh, and Ben had dropped out of a few colleges. And this was when I really should have realized uh, what my future partner was like, because <laughs> in terms of cleaning up, Ben's theory was, well, whoever gets tired of how messy and dirty it is first, they should clean up. And so it's really like the lowest common denominator <laughs> of who cleans up. I mean, it makes sense when you think about it, right? right. I mean, uh, it just had never occurred to me to put it in those terms. It's kind of a battle of the wills, really. Who can hold out the longest? Uh, I, I I don't think it was a battle of the wills. It's like what what your level of acceptance of the way things were. Uh, I mean, I don't think Ben was trying to get me to clean up before him. Were you? I mean, no, I don't think that was the idea. It it was it was just reconceptualizing neat versus messy. Mm. Why shouldn't the norm and the accepted the accepted norm be messy. And if somebody didn't like it, let them go clean up. But in this house, the accepted norm is messy. See, Jerry's laughing and I'm starting to sweat. And I'm realizing, oh, of course I would call it a battle of the wills because I'm so OCD that I'm like, the level of willpower it would take me to walk past the sink with dishes in it. I'm thinking about it. Wow. Well, you'd be a good person to live with because you'd clean everything up. It'd be great. <laughs> See, but yeah. the thing about Ben, the thing I was laughing is is because when Ben talks about norms, because mm. that that is one of the essential qualities of Ben is that he does not accept or see or whatever what what many people think of as conventional norms. He's He's somewhat unconventional, I would have to say. Well, I, I, I think I need to admit to you, Jer, that in that particular situation where I was positing this idea that, you know, why, why shouldn't the norm just be messy? I was just trying to find a reason why I wouldn't have to clean up. Well, be that as it may, the, the bigger question is about, and, you know, th this is kind of 
much of the essence of Ben and Jerry's is mm. you don't need to do things the way they've always been done. You don't mm-hmm. need to think about things the way other people think about them. And it, it extends not just from what makes ice cream a good ice cream, but it extends to larger issues like uh, what is the role of business in society? It goes mm-hmm. from the, the smallest, most tangible thing to the biggest, broadest conceptual things. And that's that's Ben. He's mm. got his hands in it and he's got his head in it too. I love that. I, I do think it's so interesting as you speak about it, Jerry, because you talk about growing up being a rule follower, liking rules, liking um, structure in a way. Mm-hmm. And Ben, you you being a more unconventional person, and I would imagine that in your conversations about what each of you thinks, it's that space between where all the ideas are probably had. So how, whether it is, as you just mentioned, how, why ice cream is what it is or how it's made to social activism and, and the role of, as you said, business and society, where did some of these ideas between the two of you begin how how did you know you wanted to work together how did you decide on ice cream how did you decide on on burlington by the way because you're talking about all the places you lived and i have not heard you talk about vermont so how did you wind up opening a shop in vermont i have so many questions well uh essentially we were two failures jerry had gone four years straight through college and was trying to become a doctor. And he applied to medical school and they all rejected him. And then he tried to get some life experience that would bolster his medical school resume. He got a job as a lab technician, which by the way, I'm about to make use of. Uh, He got a job as a lab technician and he applied to another 20 medical schools and they all rejected him. Hmm. So he was a failure. I was trying to make my living being a potter, making pottery and selling pottery. And I would make my pottery and take it around to craft fairs in this big old white van and nobody bought my pottery. And it was some of the most discouraging, disheartening experiences of my life. And so I was a failure too. And I don't know, we were just kind of, we got to get, you know, we, you know, we would continue to see each other socially. I think maybe we were living together in New York city. And I think we, we started talking about, well, maybe we should open up a restaurant together and kind of went from there. I mean, we, we always like to eat. We were we were good eaters, and neither one of us had any business training whatsoever. We you know we didn't think about business when we were opening up an ice cream shop. We were becoming ice cream guys, and you know we actually before we opened up, we practiced on our own making test batches of ice cream and home ice cream makers. That's that's sort of how we figured out how to do it. Well, and Jerry had that biochemistry background. There, there's a big, blue, thick textbook in the ice cream industry called Ice Cream. 
by <laughs> the father of modern American ice cream, Wendell S. Arbuckle, who is no longer with us. But, I mean, this was a very complex book. <laughs> it went through the entire science of ice cream. I couldn't understand it. But Jerry, because he had that biochemistry background, he could understand it. So I was going around kind of testing out ice cream recipes from homemade ice cream books. And mm. Jerry was using the theory, the science behind it to also try out different kinds of ice cream. And between the two of us, we, we, I think it was mostly Jerry. We, we came out with something really good. Is there a, a piece of that science that the average lay person like me might be fascinated to learn about how ice cream works? Oh, yes. Ice cream is a very, very interesting and complex food, isn't it, Ben? It certainly is. I think one thing, for example, that you might be interested in is that the key to making good ice cream, something that tastes really smooth in your mouth and creamy, is the particle size of the ice crystal. And really? the whole, yes, the whole, the whole theory of ice cream is to freeze the, the liquid as fast as possible. And so in order to do that, you end up using what is called generically a scraped surface heat exchanger. <laughs> so you know, <laughs> this is nothing more than... Uh, a barrel or a can that has a refrigerant around the outside and on the inside, there are these scrapers. It's, you know, in, in home ice cream, they call it a dasher, a dasher blade. And what happens is this dasher blade is spinning around inside the can and there's a very, very thin layer of ice cream that freezes and so it spins around, it scrapes that off, and then another thin layer freezes, and it goes on like that. And that's how you get really smooth, creamy ice cream. And then one of the other interesting things is that ice cream contains all three phases of matter. It's liquid, solid, and gas, all of those. But the best thing about it, and this isn't really that scientific, but this is something I've learned from Ben, is that ice cream is the only frozen food that you eat while it's still frozen. That yeah. is you gotta wrap your head around that, right? I, I see never you. I have see thought you thought about that. That's right. Of course you haven't thought about that. That's why it's so good. <laughs> oh my god. It melts okay. in your mouth. Okay, so you two are becoming <laughs> science and engineering experts. Figuring out how to make ice cream. What was what was the first flavor of ice cream you ever made? You know what, Sophie? You're, you're really overstating the case when you talk about science and engineering. I mean, am I? Because I didn't read that giant textbook, and I'm never gonna. Well, what we we re-engineered our uh, ice cream making machines. See, did we not, Jer? Yes, yes, we did. We we reamed out the uh, the ports. We slowed down the motor. Yeah, but so so when so when you talk about it, when you talk about the essence of Ben and Jerry's, uh, with with respect to the ice cream, the product mm. itself, it is high quality ingredients, mm. so it's rich and creamy. 
And then it's got the big chunks of cookies and candies and swirl. And that's the oh, texture variation. And that, that, the big chunks, that is Ben. And that is the essence of Ben and Jerry's ice cream. And what's so amazing about it is that Ben and Jerry's is now 43 years old. Ben and I just turned 70. And Ben and Jerry's has been making ice cream with big chunks since then, 43 years. And yet it's still almost impossible to find another ice cream commercially that you can get that has big chunks in it. Nobody else has figured out how to do it. And it's because the people that make Ben and Jerry's are amazing. The people that are willing to mm. put in the care that it takes. Because, you know, ice cream machinery is not really designed to put in big chunks of cookies and candies and ice cream. And so most ice cream companies make ice cream that's easy to make as opposed to what people want to eat. That's really the key. If you make what people want to mm. eat, chances are you're going to be successful. That's so cool. Yeah, yeah. And and what occurred to me when when we were figuring this out was that the reason why most commercially made food isn't that good is because the products are designed to run well on the machinery. They're designed for for the machinery to really like it. They're not really designed for people to really like it. That feels like a musing on capitalism that is, <laughs> is really blowing my brain. I, I, okay, so here's the thing. 43 years later, talking about this, this re-engineering that you did and, and creating for the consumer rather than, than the machine feels mind-blowing but easy to accept because look at the brand. But what's going on 43 years ago? Do your families think this is a great idea? Do they think you're insane? Do your friends think that you're lunatics or are they thrilled to test products? Like what's happening at the inception of this company for the two of you? Well, for my parents, you know, me dropping out of college was a horrible thing for them. It, it was crushing for them. And then me deciding to be a, a potter I mean, that was kind of kicking them while they were down. And so they were really bummed about what I was doing. Mm. You know, and then I got a, a job working as a potter at a residential school for emotionally disturbed kids in the Adirondacks where I was paid $200 a month and they didn't like that either. So when I announced that Jerry and I are going to start an ice cream store, they were ecstatic. My son, the businessman. I mean, they were so ecstatic. And I was so used to them thinking what I was doing was really screwed up. I thought there was there was probably something wrong with what I was going to start doing. But uh, I did it. And my parents, as I mentioned, were, were happy with whatever I was doing. But... You know, once again, I, I think in context, Ben and I felt like we were just opening up another ice cream shop. We didn't mm -hmm. feel like we were going into business. We didn't think this was a career decision. We thought we would do this for a couple of years and then do something else. We just thought it would be a fun thing 
to try. And we thought it would work or it wouldn't work. And there you go. And when did you know it was different? When did you know it wasn't just a shop, but that you guys were creating a true company? I think it occurred to me, uh, we opened the business in 78 in this old converted gas station. And I don't know, I think in the mid 80s, we ended up building an actual ice cream making plant, uh, a factory. And I was taking someone on a tour outside this huge building and I'm walking around with them and I'm looking at it and I'm realizing, geez, I'm, I'm like an industrialist. It was, uh, it, was, uh, it was quite a realization. It was, yeah, shocking. And how did your business become so enmeshed with activism? Were you, were you, both always interested in politics? Were you always observing uh, social change or, or the lack thereof necessary social change? I mean, wh- where did those light bulbs start lighting up for you? I, you know, I, I had gone to college in the late 60s. And so that was during mm-hmm. the Vietnam War and it was the civil rights era. And so I got exposed to a lot of a lot of social activism at that mm-hmm. time. But as far as the company was concerned, I think that was something that that evolved over time. When when we first began, our idea was to have this ice cream shop that was a little community-based shop and we didn't have any vision for a so-called activist company or or anything else. Our idea was to throw little festivals on the corner where the shop was or, or things like that. I think when we realized that, well, when the company got bigger and we started selling ice cream out of outside of Vermont, the media started coming to us and, you know, they wanted to interview us about whatever. And colleges called up and they wanted us to come and speak to their students about whatever. And we decided that if they wanted to hear us talk, we would kind of use that platform to talk about uh, social justice. You know, when I was uh, a young kid growing up, living on Long Island, my family every once in a while would drive into New York City and the route that you would take let you out, you know, you went over the bridge and it let you out right at the border of Harlem and a really well-to-do section of New York. And so we're driving down the street in this car and I'm looking out on one side and you see, you know, all these kind of bombed out buildings and garbage strewn everywhere and cars, you know, that didn't work up on blocks and you know, all the signs of, of poverty. And on the other side, it's all the signs, uh, all the signs of affluence. Mm -hmm. And I couldn't make sense of it or that, you know, just because somebody ended up being born on one side of a particular line, they lived a a life of poverty. And on another side, they lived a life of riches, you know, didn't, didn't sit well with me. Yeah. I, I had much the same experience as a kid. I think you know, my mom grew up in Jersey and in New York, and 
I grew up here in California in Los Angeles, and my dad came here, you know, late 60s, early 70s. He was going to college here, but he's from Canada. And he he really grappled with the fact, you know, in that Vietnam and post-Vietnam era that just because he wasn't like a young American kid, he couldn't have been drafted. It was a really sort of surreal thing for him. And I didn't realize how much my parents always talked to me about what we were looking at, you know, what disparities meant, what immigration meant, um, even the ways in which, you know, my mom's mother coming through Ellis Island, you know, the American dream story, even the ways in which she worked so hard to assimilate, you know, forbade my great-grandmother from speaking Italian to my mother because they had to be American and you and you could lose your culture. All of these things really have always made me question what is identity? Who is deserving? Why does where where you live govern how you live or where you're born decide what you get? And I I love hearing about you guys thinking about, you know, if I'm going to go to this college and talk about my company, you know, they want me to come because it's a successful company, but what social issue can I talk about? Because it's kind of the way I feel like, I feel like I Trojan horse my own career. I'm supposed to go talk about a TV show, but I'm like, are we discussing intersectional oppression of communities of color in America? And people are like, what are you doing? What is happening? What's on TV at eight o'clock? But to me, I'm like, well, this platform is such an immense privilege. I better spend it well, right? So... I I feel such a kinship to the way that you're you're speaking about that and and to consider that you know you were doing this stuff in the 80s there was no social media there was no you know let me jump on Instagram and share a photo of what happened in this place and and let people know about the world so where were you as your company was growing and and you did realize you both could spend that privilege where were you gleaning information what what sources were you leaning into to make sure you felt informed? Or or was it more that just by nature of existing in the world and reading the paper, you were fired up about issues that you were reading about? I, I think it's just a matter of living in the world and being aware of what's going on. At some point, I think after the business started, I ended up getting these newsletters and video cassettes from the Center for Defense Information, which was a group of high-level retired military officers that were critical of what the United States military was doing. And I ended up getting very much aware and kind of focused on the idea that, you know, the U.S. and the Soviet Union were spending huge amounts of money. I mean, half of half of our discretionary budget was spent on uh, making weapons designed to kill millions of people in my name that I had nothing against. And, you know, just a small percentage of that military budget would be enough to you know, eliminate poverty, definitely in the U.S. and probably around the world. Mm-hmm. And it it just kind of drove me crazy. I mean, I, I, I just, you know, was very focused on that and, and ended up spending a lot of time trying to get that changed. 
Yeah, I mean, you've you've served on so many boards, the Social Venture Network, Oxfam, Greenpeace, Businesses for Social Responsibility, Heifer International. Uh, what what have those experiences taught you? And, and how do you begin even serving on one of, let alone all of those boards? What's what's the process like, you know, for, for listeners at home who want to be involved? What kinds of work do you do to eventually become a board member of an organization like one of those? Well, <laughs> I mean, mostly what I learned from being on those boards is that I don't really like being on boards. <laughs> uh, <laughs> I mean, th- they were all great organizations, but in a lot of respects, you know, the people that are working in the organization day to day, you know, devoting their lives to it, have an idea of what they want to do. And this board that, you know, gets together, I don't know, once a month, four times a year, isn't really that w- that much in touch with the or- the organization and what it's doing. And, you know, I, I think I'm more of a hands-on guy. Uh, mm-hmm. You know, I, I like to, to actually do stuff as opposed to... Uh, I don't know, sit around on boards. Is that what motivated the two of you to start the Ben and Jerry Foundation? To to really be hands-on with, you know, instigating and supporting change? Well, I, I think, you know, there was a stage in the business's life when, you know, it was growing at a very rapid rate. Jerry and I were spending all of our time, I mean, like all of our time, you know, like working 80 or 100 hours a week. And, you know, we weren't really making any money. And then we started making a little money, but we, we kind of had to pay it back to the bank. You know, it was all bank loans. And we decided that we should sell the business, you know, that we were just becoming cogs in the economic machine that oppresses a whole lot of people. Mm. Uh, that business exploits its employees, it exploits the environment, exploits the community, and we didn't really want to do that. And we actually put the business up for sale. And then I was delivering ice cream, and and I, I had made friends with this old eccentric restaurateur, Maurice Purpura, and I told him that we were planning on selling the business. And he said, Ben, you're crazy. How could you possibly think about selling the business? It, it's so young. It has so much potential. It's you. You could do anything. And and I said, Maurice, you know what business does? It exploits these guys, those guys, the other guys. He said, Ben, if there's something you don't like about business, why don't you just change it? And mm. that hadn't really occurred to me before. And that's when we decided to keep the business and kind of conduct this experiment and see if it was possible that business was just a neutral tool, like a hammer, and you can use it to tear things down or you can use it to build things up. And So how did you begin to decide, or I guess rather, what were the changes that the two of you made in the company to begin building up? Because you mentioned business often exploits employees, supply chains contain so much harm, Factories are dangerous for people. I mean, the list goes on and on. So how do you decide 
as a unit, as business partners, we're going to stay in charge and we are going to uplift our people. We're going to protect our employees. We're going to pay people well. What, what are the steps that you began taking when, when you had that aha moment? Uh, we weren't quite sure how we were going to do that. I don't know, Jerry. You remember any of those steps? Well, so part of it was formalizing a mission for the company. Mm. And as we mentioned, the company started in 1978. Uh, in 1988, the company came out with a mission statement that was a three-part mission. And the mission talked about a product mission, it talked about a financial mission, and it talked about a social mission, using the power of the business to address social and environmental concerns in the world. And that all three of those missions were equally important and interdependent. So that that was a key step, I think. And, and from there, it was a matter of figuring out how you want to do it. And I think as Ben and I have often said, <laughs> we had no idea how we wanted to do it. And one thing I've learned from Ben is uh, when you don't know what to do, you just come up with some idea and you try it. Mm. And sometimes it works, sometimes it doesn't work. Usually it doesn't work. And then you learn from it, you make some changes and you try it again. And eventually we decided that we were going to look at all the normal day-to-day business activities that that a business does. So for an ice cream company, it would be how do you source your ingredients or how do you do your marketing or how do you sell your ice cream? And to try to integrate social and environmental concerns into those activities. But I think the real, kind of the real breakthrough for Ben and Jerry's was the idea of using its voice to talk about social issues that might be controversial, that were not universally agreed upon, and that you would be taking a risk of alienating people and some of your customers. And uh, you you were talking a little earlier about uh, using your platform, right? Talking about whatever. And there's pushback, right? People... Mm -hmm. People want you to either keep making your flavors or keep talking about your projects or, mm-hmm. you know, something like that. And I think, you know, having someone like Ben at the company or there was another person, Jeff Furman, who was really instrumental in pushing the company forward and saying, look, uh, we're based on values and we need to be willing to talk about them. And, you know, uh, amazingly, the company has done fine with that. And and a lot of the controversy was within the company, not necessarily outside, but getting people within the company to believe that it was appropriate for business to be talking about the military budget and what was a government program, essentially, mm-hmm. where you might be seen as unpatriotic or whatever. So yeah, a lot of the a lot of the pushback was overcoming our own hesitancy about it. This was in an era where the the term socially responsible business had not been coined yet. Mm-hmm. So I, you know, I remember 
going to bookstores and going to the, you know, the business section and trying to find books on how to do what we were trying to do. And there just weren't any. So, you know, I mean, the reason why we came up with this three-part mission statement was because at the board of directors level at Ben and Jerry's, there was a lot of conflict. There were, you know, there was a lot of arguments about, you know, should the business be doing this thing that's not really directly related to increasing profits? Should we be devoting company time and energy to, you know, sourcing blueberries from Native Americans in order to help Native Americans instead of just getting the cheapest blueberry we could get from XYZ mega blueberry company? And so in order to solve these arguments that were happening at the board of directors level, that's why that mission statement was made. And then I don't remember whether Peace Pops came out before that mission statement or right after it. But anyhow, you know, this was during the Cold War and uh, the U.S. and the Soviet Union were at each other's throats. And we were coming out with a chocolate covered ice cream pop on a stick. You know, I felt like instead of using the packaging to talk about what a great chocolate covered ice cream pop on a stick you're about to eat, why don't we use our packaging to talk about the issue of all this money that's getting wasted on the Pentagon? And mm -hmm. let's advocate to take 1% of the Pentagon budget, which would have been $3 billion at the time, and use it to create bridges of understanding between the people of the Soviet Union and the people of the United States in order to try to get at the roots of the Cold War. So it was an argument about, is it proper, fitting? Is, it, is this something that a business can do to take a stand on that, on that issue? It was really kind of tearing the company apart, the, the internal conflict. And finally, I just shoved it down people's throats. <laughs> and, uh, did you did you fight so hard to do it because you just knew that it was the right thing to do? You just you had that sort of extra sense that you were convinced that someone needed to stand up and have this conversation. <laughs> I guess. It's a great question. No one's ever asked Ben that question before. <laughs> because I, I think about that. I think about that, you know, that kind of fire. When, when you've got it like in your heart or in your belly and you just are literally burning over something. And I, I've always felt like that was, I could never put a word on it. I was like, it's like a lighthouse. It's like an internal GPS. It's a, I always was struggling to figure out what to call that. Because people would say, well, essentially, people would be like, why are you like this? And I'm like, it's like I'm on fire. I can't, I can't. And then Glennon Doyle, one of my favorite activists and authors, said, oh, that's your sacred rage. And I was like, this is why you're a New York Times bestseller. Because you just termed the thing that I've been talking about forever in, in terrible verbiage of my own. And I, it strikes me that you you had that kind of flame burning over this. And, and it feels to me, even now, I, I think you guys have done such a beautiful job. You know, when I flip through your Instagram and you're explaining cash bail or you're explaining systemic racism and, and you're talking on, on your ice cream brand's 
social media page about social issues that are important to us to understand so that we can be better friends and neighbors, that we can have better, stronger communities. Because the reality is if someone somewhere is being harmed, we're all being harmed. I, I truly am grateful and I love, I love the way that you've been able to do it. And I, I see the roots of it as we talk, you know, what you're doing in 2020 and 2021, how it goes back to this moment in the 80s, how you said the packaging of the pop is going to be this. And here's a mission statement to tell you why. I, I think in, in my head, I sort of see it like a, like a funnel, you know, when, when things are moving down and they narrow and they go through the little bottleneck. What you really did was say to everyone working with and for you, it has to fit through this or it isn't us. And I think that those kind of guidelines can really simplify for people ways of behaving and, and ways of advocating. And I wonder, have there been moments throughout all of this, throughout all of your advocacy that, that have stood out to you when you've realized that you both were making such an impact? Well, n- not really. I mean, so one, one thing I'll say I mean, you, you described that beautifully, and I'll just add to it that it's not easy. Mm-hmm. It, it's it's a struggle, and so people should understand it, mm-hmm. if you want to do stuff like this, you have to stand up, and it's not always easy. And it's mm-hmm. great to have someone in your company like Ben who who is willing to do that. The other thing I'll say is that you know, Ben and I are are not in charge of anything at Ben and Jerry's and, and haven't been for a long time. And after the murder of George Floyd, Ben and Jerry's came out with a statement that said, we must dismantle white supremacy. Mm-hmm. It was just clear and well-spoken and forthright. And it's mm-hmm. nothing Ben and I did, and yet I'm incredibly proud that there are people at Ben and Jerry's who who are doing that, who are taking it upon themselves to do that. And I hear you because, of course, as you mentioned, you know, you guys did it. You eventually did sell the company. You uh, you you wrote that phenomenal book, you know, how to run a values led business and make money doing it. You, but but I, I would say that didn't just happen at Ben and Jerry's. That happened because of both of you. There's no way that a company that, you know, that since its inception in the 70s had been apolitical would suddenly in 2021 be, or 2020 be so exactingly brave and wise. You have both set the stage there. I, I get the sense that you, you don't take compliments well, um, which I understand. It's something that I've been working on. <laughs> if it's true that we're the same, it's something I've been working on for the last few years is not to like rebuff a compliment the minute it comes in. But uh, I, I hope that there is a place, even if you don't want to do it in conversation, where you know and you own that you guys did that. You laid the bricks of the road that other people have been able to continue. And I actually think... It's such a testament to that mission statement you mentioned from the 80s, that three-part mission statement, will I, which I will ask you to send to me so that I can share it when we share this interview. But you created the vessel that other people now maintain, and I think you should really be proud of that. Like, 
you guys are badass. <laughs> well, I, I, I'm proud of it, and and they're the, the people there now are going beyond anything. Yeah, you passed ben a torch. And you know, actually, if if we're going to take credit for something, I think at least Ben and I did understand that that our job was to try to infuse into the company those values that it was mm-hmm. not based on two old ice cream guys that it, it's based on the values of the company and mm-hmm. that's what endures yeah i i mean when we very consciously decided to try to infuse the values into the company we didn't think that we were going to be successful we resisted the sale of the company. We did everything we could to keep it from getting sold because we felt that if it got sold, we would lose the values. The company mm-hmm. would lose the values. So, yeah, I accept your mm-hmm. compliment. Thank you. And, yeah, I, I think the thing that we, that we really did accomplish was infusing the values into the company. I, I, I think that... You know, it was part of a realization that business has now become the most powerful mm-hmm. force in the world. Originally, the most powerful force in the world was religion. And then the most powerful force in the world came to be nation states. And business has only come to be the most powerful force within my mm-hmm. own lifetime. And Religion and nation states at least have as their purpose to improve the quality of life for people in general. But business has never had that as part of its purpose Mm. at all. And so what this was, was a realization that if we are going to have a world that benefits people as a whole, that's beneficial to society business has got to use its mm-hmm. power to do that just because it's the most powerful thing there is. And, you know, the reality, when you look at it, you realize that, you know, business controls our media through ownership. It controls our legislation mm-hmm. through lobbyists. It controls our elections through political donations. So business is an incredibly political animal. It just uses all of its power in its own Mm -hmm. narrow self-interest, and it tries to do it Mm -hmm. covertly. It doesn't really want people to know that they are putting their finger on the scales and, you know, influencing our Mm -hmm. elections and our laws. All that happened at Ben and Jerry's was we we said, yeah, we're going to be political, and but we're going to be overt. Honest. And... Instead of doing it just in our own narrow self-interest, we're going to do it for the interests of mm-hmm. the community as a whole. Yeah, I years ago I I met with a guy who started an organization called Represent Us, and they've got eighty-seven percent bipartisan support. The whole point is to get corporate money out of elections, and the information that they provide to the public—it's wild. I, I, I co-hosted an event for them, and it was wild to see how shocked people were about how much corporate money goes into politics. And you realize the only way we're going to clean this up is if we get honest about it. So I I really appreciate the, you say overt, but I just think about it as being really honest. 
So many businesses don't want us to know who they donate to. They don't want us to know what lobbyists they employ. And if we could go more in the the direction of the example you all set, I think about what would be possible. I, I, I'm curious, at, at what point, what was the year, well, this is a two-part question, what was the year that you sold the company? And if there's any anything you want to share about that, because there are people who are going to flock to this episode because they want to learn from your business wisdom. And I'm sure so many people are curious about why that happens and how that happens. And then I wonder, and I can repeat the question later because maybe this will be a, a big tangent, but I wonder how you you also then maintain all of your work with the foundation. So I think the year was... 2000 or 2001, the company got sold because it was a public company mm. at the time, which means anyone can purchase shares. Mm-hmm. And so that's that's what happened. All I can tell you, it was uh, an incredibly difficult and horrible time. Mm. Uh, and I think it was a hard time for Ben and me personally that the mm-hmm. company was getting sold, uh, not just for us individually, but together. You know, Ben and Jerry's was the first company in Vermont to go public just within the state of Vermont. We had an in-state public stock offering. So shares of the company were available only Mm. to Vermonters. And, And essentially what we felt was that this was an effort to share the wealth that we wanted to make the community the owners of the business. And by the end of that stock offering, one out of every hundred Vermont families had bought stock in Ben and Jerry's. You know, we had shareholders meetings that were really huge parties. There were music festivals. And, you know, I mean, usually publicly held companies are trying to hold their shareholders meetings at an inconvenient time in an inconvenient place and try to get as few people as possible to show up. And we mm. were doing the opposite. And, you know, we rented the biggest tent in Vermont and, you know, still couldn't hold all the people that came. So the idea was to make the community the owners of the business. We were successful in doing that. Then we ended up going mm. public nationally. And what I wanted was to be an anti-corporate corporation. Right. And I really see the basis of so many of the problems in the world being the increasing concentration of wealth into fewer and fewer hands. And so having the company, which was trying to be an anti-corporate corporation, get sold to some huge corporation, you know, went against all of that. Yeah. So, I don't know. (laughs) That's what happened. So did that that sort of... Ugh, and it just it, it puts a knot in my stomach to think about that for you guys, that, that notion that the exact thing you were trying to avoid uh, in corporate culture became kind of unavoidable. It's, it feels like getting caught in a riptide or something. Is that what led you to establish the foundation or had you already done that? The founda- we established the foundation when the company went public. Mm. We needed it to be established so that shareholders, you know, know, we were going to have a a significant amount of money was going out of the corporation into this foundation. We originally wanted 10% of profits to go out and 
you know, the underwriters talked us down to seven and a half. Mm. So we, we needed the share, the people who would buy shares to know that that was going to be, that that's what they were buying into. Yeah, part of the deal. Um, right. So that's when that happened. And, and Jerry became the, the president of the foundation. Mm. And, you know, he could <laughs> tell you that. And what are the what are the things the foundation is most deeply focused on? The foundation is focused on grants to small nonprofit organizations that are doing grassroots organizing for social justice. And they're organizations that are run and operated by the people who are uh, impacted. And, you know, one of the things that's interesting about the foundation is that uh, the final decision making for these grant applications that come in is done by uh, a volunteer group of employees who uh, decide mm-hmm. where the money goes. And so there's, there's something really nice about, about the fact that the people who are doing the work to earn the money get to see where it goes. And, you know, as Ben mentioned, uh, uh, I used to be the president. I'm now the vice president. I'm one of the trustees. And the four trustees of the foundation are essentially a rubber stamp for uh, sending the money out to wherever the employee committee decides it should go. That's very cool. And it strikes me as different, you know, than what you were saying, Ben, about how so often this board of directors is not that involved meets and makes the top level decisions. And you guys have engineered this to be the reverse. And I just, I love it. It's like, it gives me big high five energy. Um, how, where, where does the campaign to end qualified immunity fit in with the work of the foundation or, or are those things happening in parallel? So the campaign to end qualified immunity is a separate initiative that Ben and I are involved in, you know, as I'm sure you're aware, over the years, there have been far too many murders of unarmed Black people. Uh, and and with last summer, the murder of George Floyd, it, it was just such an outrage. And of course, like millions of Americans, we wanted to do something. We became aware of an open letter to Congress that was written by the Players Coalition, signed by 1,400 professional athletes uh, and front office people, urging Congress to end qualified immunity. And qualified immunity is this mm. made-up legal doctrine that is essentially a get-out-of-jail-free card for bad cops. And so we wanted to see if we could help with that campaign. We came out with a similar letter that was signed by over 700 business people. And since then, we've created mm. this, this campaign that that is comprised of 16 national advocacy organizations ranging from the ACLU and the NAACP Legal Defense Fund to the Cato Institute, the Institute for Justice, which is another libertarian group, Americans for Prosperity. So it's a very broad and diverse mm-hmm. campaign, and mm-hmm. we're uh, we're working on it. That's wonderful. It, it's so interesting to me reading 
I think as so many of us did, as you mentioned after last summer, that that letter learning about qualified immunity, it made me so angry to learn about it because I thought, you know, there are people saying not all cops. There are people saying there's good guys, you know, who want to just serve and protect. And I thought, but then prove it. Then don't create loopholes that literally protect the bad cops. Don't create, as you said, these get out of jail free cards for murder. You can't tell us to feel safe if you don't police yourselves. And I think that in the same way that we're all calling for an end to corporate money and politics, all of these things really, for me, boil down to that through line of transparency, mm-hmm. of, of a real requirement for a base level of clarity and justice and for rules to be put in place that prevent corruption in all of these arenas. And, and I'm very excited by and grateful for the work that you all are doing on this and, and the, you know, other organizations that you're working in tandem with. Well, come visit our website. Yeah. Tell, tell the people what it is. Holdcopsaccountable.org. 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 Which, you know, I feel like the asterisk always is, and yes, we know that there are good folks on the force. They shouldn't be worried about this. They should be supporting this too. That's That's exactly exactly true. Yeah. Our, Our message is support and love the good ones, prosecute the bad ones. It's definitely not an anti-police message. It's a message of accountability. Mm-hmm. Uh, ben and I are in the business world. Uh, you, you couldn't have a business, you couldn't have any organization if you don't have accountability. Everyone knows the key to achieving your desired results is to having accountability. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And And when you don't hold cops accountable that have abused their power, it's a message that it's okay to abuse your power. Mm -hmm. And the other side of it is that the people who got abused never get any justice. No justice is ever served. Mm -hmm. You know, the cop is still on the force. Yeah. There was a great, I thought, proposal in the state of Maryland because you know, what the cops say is that, uh, well, if I'm going to be held personally liable, I'm going to, I'm going to, you know, lose my house, you know, uh, whatever. I, I, I can't afford it. I can't afford to pay those kinds of, you know, damages for, you, you know, the kind of damages that you get when you, when you kill somebody. Mm. Well, and then the municipalities that employ the cops, you know, a lot of times they indemnify the cop mm. and they say, well, we can't afford it either. Mm-hmm. And so this proposal in Maryland was that, well, yeah, you can sue the cop and your payment is the cop's pension. And, and this was what one of the victims said, was that if they know that they can lose their pension, mm-hmm. they're going to think twice mm-hmm. before they go and rough somebody up or worse. Mm. I think that's really wise. And as you mentioned... The rest of us have accountability at work. 
Yeah, everybody's got accountability. I mean, mm-hmm. look, I mean, this this law is so absurd that you know, if I, as a regular human being, citizen, you know, go off and assault somebody, mm-hmm. that person can sue me. Mm-hmm. If a cop goes and assaults somebody, you can't sue him. The guy who is supposed, I mean, this is a law enforcement officer. Yes. The guy who is charged with enforcing the law mm-hmm. is above the law. And that's what has to end. Yes, and that's why we see bad behavior. I mean, to your point, we've seen, we shouldn't have to see any more videos, but we've seen so many videos of egregious behavior. I mean, I will never get, I can't remember where the school was, which is also sad considering that they start to blur together because there are so many. I can't remember where it happened, but I watched a video of a cop pick up and body slam this girl in the hallway of her school. I think she was 12 or 13 years old. It was so violent. And I thought, this guy doesn't have an excuse, but whether it's conscious or unconscious, he feels that he has permission because he's never gotten in trouble for hurting someone. He's never faced accountability for harming someone. And none of us exist in a world where we can do that. And to your point, I simply want accountability for people who are allowed to carry lethal weapons around to be as intense as the accountability is for the rest of us, say, who are driving cars. You know, we, we need a way forward to a behavioral system where we don't see children being assaulted and we don't see people being knelt on until they die. There's no reason for this. There just isn't a reason for so much of what we've witnessed. And I can't imagine that it is an easy job to have. But I also, from working in tandem with it as an entertainer, have heard stories about how all these guys know a guy on the force who's just a bad apple. And I think, I I thought Chris Rock put it so beautifully in his stand-up. This is a job where we can't have bad apples. This is like, you can't have a few bad apples that are airline pilots, he said. We're not up for plane crashes, and we shouldn't be up for this either. And to me, uh, you know, uh, Jerry, I thought you said it so well. It's not about being, quote unquote, anti-police. It's about being Mm pro-safety. It's about being pro-community for for all of us. So I think that the work, you know, the, the awareness that you and all of these other groups are helping to promote is is so important. And I'm curious, why do you think that this cause in particular of of all the things you've been passionate about over the past decades that we've been referring to, why why do you think that this cause has struck such a chord with both of you? It's the same reason why it struck such a chord with people all over our country and around the world, Mm. that we had the biggest protests in the street, Mm. that I can remember in my life Mm -hmm. because, you know, you've seen it with your own eyes. You Mm -hmm. see it on video and you see it happening again and again. And you see these guys getting away Mm scot-free. And yeah, people just had it up to here. And But what I got to say is there's a shitload of them that we never saw on Mm -hmm. video. Most of them never, you never hear about most of them. 
Mm-hmm. I mean, you know, I was I was working with these mothers of children who had gotten killed or injured for life by the police in Maryland, and I had never heard about any of those cases. Mm-hmm. There's very few. Yeah. That that make it to the national news. And I think the thing that is so striking to me is is that it's undeniable that we live in two Americas where we won't hear about those kids where Tamir Rice can be shot in, you know, 1.7 seconds playing with a toy gun on a playground, which all of us have done as children, and Kyle Rittenhouse who executed people with an assault rifle crossing state lines was given water and and peacefully escorted into a police car. These things should upset us. They should motivate us toward change. And and I think to circle back to a point you made earlier, you have proven that companies can get creative in terms of proving that you can do both, that you can leverage a platform that businesses do have a political responsibility, that if you have the privilege of a platform, you should spend it. I I get excited about it. And, and I think about what you were saying about back then going into the bookstore looking for a book about this, and there wasn't one. So many people say, well, yeah, they could do it. They had this big company. I couldn't do it. And and you you guys thought, well, yeah, you can. And you wrote a book about it. You You wrote this book... Uh, called Double Dip, How to Run a Values-Led Business and Make Money Too. And and I'm really curious about, in terms of being so passionate about social change, obviously we'll, we're, we're telling everybody to go and read the book, but is, is there a point or two that now, because I guarantee everyone listening at home is feeling fired up and wants to make a difference, is there a point or two that you would offer to the listeners about how to begin that trajectory, about about how to begin in their own lives proving that they can do both. You know, say if you're interested in in this issue about cops getting away with murder, you can go on to the website, holdcopsaccountable.org, and you can enter your email address. That makes it possible for the campaign to end qualified immunity to communicate with you. Mm-hmm. And so then when your individual voice counts, when there's legislation moving in your state or legislation moving nationally, where we need you to pressure your congressperson to, to vote to end qualified immunity, we can send you the information. We can give you the phone number to call. We can tell you what to say mm-hmm. and you can do it. You know, in other situations, what we need is a letter to the editor, and it's the same thing. Mm. We can send you the information. We can give you the bullet points to write. We can send the letter in to you. You don't have to research it. We, you know, we do we do that work for you. You just need to, you know, follow a few simple steps on this particular issue. You know, there's Black Lives Matter groups, you know, around the country, and you could get involved in those things. Uh, you, you asked about why are we involved with ending qualified immunity, and it's certainly not a silver bullet. There, there are a lot of police reforms that are necessary. 
one thing about ending qualified immunity is it's possible to do. Mm. It's an opportunity to turn protest into policy. Ending qualified immunity has already happened in the state of Colorado. It just happened in New York City. And as Ben has talked about with me so many times, it's up to people who look like him and me. It's Mm -hmm. up to white people to weigh in on this. This is not simply a black or brown problem. This is a problem that white people have. Mm -hmm. And if it's going to get solved, us white people need to be in it all the way. Because mm-hmm. it's white people who have the power in our society. I mean, the reality is that the people that we have hired and given the privilege to use lethal force in our name are killing black people before our very eyes. Mm-hmm. And we're letting them get away with it. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. And the other thing about this issue as Jerry said, there's a lot of police reforms that are needed. And a lot of it revolves around police contracts, which the so-called fraternal order of police is pretty much forcing on your city. Mm. The, I think there's something like around 17,000 individual police departments in the country. This happens to be an area where your local city council, your local town officers, the people that are making the rules in your local town, this is like situations where you can go to that meeting. You can go and talk to those people. You know those people. You can, you can tell them, we want a different contract. Mm-hmm. We don't want to have a, a, a contract where Police officers, if they're accused of something, they get somewhere between 48 hours and 30 days to make up a story about why they did it before you can question them. And and we want we want their disciplinary records to be public. We we want to know. Yeah, we deserve to know. If there's cops on the force that are abusing people. And we don't want cops that have disciplinary records. you know, continue to break the rules. We don't want them to be promoted. We want them to be off the force. Right. Well, I think about, you know, even as an example, Officer Hankinson, one of the gentlemen involved in the murder of Breonna Taylor, after that happened, multiple women came forward and discussed that he had assaulted them. And I just thought they knew that this guy was a dangerous guy. Why is he still working? And it's it's exactly that, again, the transparency that we need. I, I wonder as you're, as you're pushing for this kind of transparency, as you're pushing for this legal change, is, is this work what's led you? I I read about this and I'm just fascinated and I need to know. I, I read that you guys are working on a book with Killer Mike. Did, did the qualified immunity work lead there? How did this happen? He is amazing. What's going on? Is is this true or is this an internet rumor that I'm just praying is true? Yeah, you know, it it uh he is totally amazing and uh yes, Killer Mike wrote the forward to this book that is just coming out mm. called Above the Law: How Violent Police Get Away with It. And it's and it it is 16 little stories of uh 
people who have been abused or worse mm. by the cops and how their case was thrown out of court because of qualified immunity. But the book begins with this incredibly powerful forward from mm. Killer Mike. I love watching him speak. I anytime he is amazing. Ugh, anytime he's at a rally or an event and you know someone posts a video on Instagram, I have them saved in a folder. I just think he's so wise and and he he helps light that fire, that sort of sacred rage fire for me. I'm I'm really looking forward to reading the book. Um we're we're talking about so many things that are important and I I feel that come from learning lessons about community and about belonging and how to defend it. I'm, I'm curious, as you both look forward, what are the lessons that you really hope to pass on to people, the lessons that matter most to you, maybe the people that matter most to you, to, to your children? What, what feel like the sort of shining ideas? Uh, it's corny and it's a cliche, but it's all about love. Mm. You can rant and rave and we need to protest and we need to change things. But in the end, it's all about love. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, Cornell West has this quote, justice is what love looks like in public. Mm. I mean, I, I would tell my kid to stand up for what she believes in. I love that. Because really it's foundational and then it's also, you've combined it with how to, how to exercise it, how to take it out in public. And I, I think that that's beautiful. So I do need to ask before I let you go, and I'm sure everybody does, but I, I couldn't possibly end an interview with the both of you without knowing this. What are your favorite ice cream flavors? Well, for me, that's easy. It's Americone Dream, vanilla ice cream with a caramel swirl, fudge-covered pieces of waffle cones. It's my mm. go-to flavor every time. Mm. You know, for the longest time, well, at first I was really into Heath Bar Crunch. And then we came out with a variant coffee Heath Bar Crunch, mm. which I got into. But I haven't really had Heath Bar Crunch in quite a while. Then I got into Cherry Garcia. Mm -hmm. And I was really into that for a long time. I haven't had that much lately either. Now I'm, uh, I've spent a, some time with Chubby Hubby, chocolate-covered peanut butter-filled pretzels and vanilla malt ice cream with a peanut butter swirl. And I'm going back to New York Super Fudge Chunk, which was an early classic. Mm. I, I, guess, I guess that's, that's where I am at these days. Just a few casual items. My God, I, I too had a long phase with Cherry Garcia. And then I got really, really addicted to fish food. But like the chocolate fudge brownie just, it stays classic for me forever, forever. It's one that I can always, always, always go back to. So now I'm hungry. <laughs> you know, uh, chocolate fudge brownie came about because... We Ben and Jerry's was making a brownie ice cream sandwich. It used two thin, chewy, fudgy brownies that were so fudgy that they you couldn't put them on by machine. They had to be put on by hand. 
And wow. uh, we needed to find another supplier of these chocolate fudgy brownies. And we found this bakery in inner city New York that was run by a religious organization. And their purpose was to employ formerly unemployable people. Hmm. And so we said, well, well, we'll use those guys. So, you know, we ordered, I don't know, like 10,000 pounds of brownies. So they hadn't really filled a, an order of that size before. And they were making it for, you know, a couple of weeks and storing it in their freezer. And then they shipped it up to us. And we opened up this, you know, like it was a 30 pound box of brownies and we went to pull out these brownies and they, they had all solidified into one 30 pound lump of brownie. Uh, Cause they had put them in when they were hot and the freezer, what didn't have enough power to cool it down quick enough. So, you know, our people are trying to pick these things apart and they were falling apart and, you know, if it was a normal supplier, we would just send the load back and say, you know, send us another one. But this guy, these guys, we would have put them out of business. Mm. So we kept the stuff and we decided to use the pieces of brownies to make chocolate fudge brownie ice cream. And that's how that flavor was created. And that same, that same business, that same business, it was purposes to give jobs to formerly unemployable people. They're still making it. That is just the coolest thing I've ever heard. I love that. Ah, I love that. (laughs) Makes me feel very secure about my forever favorite choice. Yeah. (laughs) So I have one final question for you both. It's probably my favorite thing to ask everyone who comes on the podcast, as it is called Work in Progress. I'm curious what feels like a work in progress in each of your lives in this moment, whether it's personal, professional, political, really whatever comes to mind first. Well, the thing that comes to mind first for me is uh, ending qualified immunity. Mm. Uh, For me, it is about developing more compassion in my life. It's an ongoing thing, and I'm probably going to be working on it for a long time. (laughs) Is that for yourself or for the world around you? I I think about it in terms of people around me, but uh, I could probably fit in there for myself as well. Very good. I like a I like a personal goal and a societal goal together. So you guys really nailed that answer. <laughs> Thank you both so much for today. This has just been an absolute joy. I I feel much more inspired this afternoon than I did when I woke up this morning. So I'm very grateful. This thank has been you. a yeah. This has been a beautiful conversation, Sophia. Thank you very much. Thanks, I mean, guys. It's really, really good to be talking with you. Likewise, and anything I can ever do to you know support what you're up to, just holler. I'm here. All right. Thank you so much. Mm-hmm.